beyond to show great customer service. Each month, the Southwest Spirit magazine features the story of an employee who has gone above and beyond. Southwest highlights positive behaviors through a variety of recognition programs and awards. Finally, internal corporate videos are filled with real examples and stories to help employees visualize what each step of the purpose looks and feels like. For example, Southwest is friendly. In one internal video, Jessica, a Southwest customer, talks about the day she and her family saw her husband off for a six-month deployment in Kuwait. Kelly, a customer service agent, saw the family and asked if they all wanted to go to the gate. According to Jessica, it bought us 30 more minutes to spend time together. Yet another employee asked if the family would like to go on the plane itself. That man's children were able to give him one last hug as the passengers cheered. Southwest is reliable. Reliability stories at Southwest often focus on business travel because Southwest is the top-rated airline among business travelers. In one video, a businesswoman says, They board the fastest. They get my bags off the fastest, which is efficient. I know exactly when I will land every week, and I can easily schedule my meetings because I know they'll be on time. Southwest is low cost. In one video, Vicky, a passenger and a soon-to-be grandmother, received a call from her pregnant daughter who had been diagnosed with a serious medical condition. Vicky was a teacher. She did not have a lot of money, but Southwest's low rates allowed her to take five round trips from Orlando to Birmingham during the pregnancy until the grandchild was born. According to Vicky, I realized what a significant role Southwest had played in the whole story. Yet another video shows a mother's emotional reaction as she sees her daughter show up unexpectedly at her doorstep during the holidays. The daughter didn't have enough money to fly home, but one night she received an alert, a notice of a limited-time fare deal. The low price allowed her to book a flight for the very next day and to give her mom the best gift she could receive. Although anyone can view these videos on YouTube, they were not necessarily intended for the public. They are meant to motivate and to educate Southwest's internal audience, to remind them why their jobs matter to millions of people. Herb Kelleher said, The core of the company's success is the most difficult thing for a competitor to imitate. He said, They can buy all the physical things. The things you can't buy are dedication, devotion, loyalty, the feeling that you're participating in a crusade. Do your employees feel as though they are participating in a crusade? Do they have a sense of purpose beyond receiving a paycheck twice a month? Herb Kelleher said, It's one of the most enduring mysteries of all time. A motivated employee treats the customer well. A customer is happy, so they'll keep coming back, which pleases the shareholder. It's just the way it works. The Storyteller's Secret Successful leaders build an award-winning culture with stories that bring the company's purpose to life. Publicly sharing those stories triggers a crusade. Chapter 28 When Amy lost her legs, she found her voice. Show me a hero and I'll write you a tragedy. F. Scott Fitzgerald Amy thought she had the flu. Her body ached and she had a slight fever. Amy was only 19 years old, in good health, and could tear up a mountain on her snowboard. She went home to rest, but got sicker and sicker. Luckily, her younger cousin had just gotten her driver's license and rushed Amy to the hospital. Amy's entire body was crashing. Her kidneys were shutting down. Massive kidney failure, she heard the doctor say. Amy had entered severe septic shock. At one point, Amy was sure she had felt her last heartbeat. Just before doctors put Amy into a medically induced coma, she remembers seeing her feet. They were discolored and had turned from purple to violet. 
A body in septic shock pulls blood from its extremities to feed failing organs. Amy was dying. Miraculously, the doctors were able to perform emergency surgery and saved Amy's life. Her legs, however, had to be amputated below the knee a few weeks later. After a very long recovery, Amy Purdy doesn't look like she's lost a step. She's continued to compete, and she won a bronze medal in adaptive snowboarding at the 2014 Paralympic Games. Purdy also won the hearts of millions of television viewers when she reached the finals of ABC's popular show Dancing with the Stars. Millions of others were exposed to Amy's story when they watched her deeply emotional TEDx talk, Living Beyond Limits. Amy's storytelling skills even landed her on the stage next to Oprah Winfrey on Oprah's eight-city The Life You Want weekend tour. Although Purdy's story has inspired millions, most people don't realize how close Purdy came to shutting the door entirely on her public speaking career because she didn't believe she had a story worth telling. Once Amy embraced her story, an entirely new world opened up for her. Amy Purdy once told me, You'd think my darkest days were when I lost my legs. Instead, my darkest days were when I went home and I had to walk in those metal legs for the first time. I had to rethink the rest of my life. I felt so out of control. I was at the bottom of the barrel. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's when this question popped into my head. If my life were a book, and I was the author, how would I want the story to go? I knew what I didn't want. I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. I didn't want people to see me as disabled. I wanted to live a life of adventure and stories. That question allowed me to daydream. Daydream about traveling the world. Daydream about snowboarding. Daydream about all the things I wanted to do and completely believing that it was possible. When Amy Purdy lost her legs, she found her voice. The Storyteller's Tools like many of today's great storytellers, Amy Purdy was a bundle of nerves in her first appearances before an audience. In Purdy's book, On My Own Two Feet, she describes what happened when a conference invited her to be a keynote speaker, and they offered to pay $8,000. I was in panic mode, she said. I stopped eating. I could barely sleep. Amy drove herself sick with worry because she couldn't figure out how to boil down 30 years of life into 30 minutes. Unable to overcome her panic, she finally backed out. The first and last time I've ever walked away from a big commitment, according to Purdy. Purdy decided to take the pressure off by teaming up with a friend who also had an inspiring story to tell. So together they spoke at high schools to improve their public speaking skills. I started to get fascinated with the craft of storytelling, Purdy says. What I found was you don't always have to have the most amazing story. It's learning to share the story that you have that counts. Purdy told me that she leaned on her training as an athlete to transform herself into a confident storyteller. She watched great speakers and accepted as many opportunities as possible. She also visualized her success. It's been an evolution, she said. I've experienced success on stage and failure, where I stood on stage for 45 minutes and wanted to die as I tried to figure out what I wanted to say next. I knew I wanted to share my story to help other people. I got invited to my old high school and I shared my stories with all the classes. I remember I was so nervous and I didn't know where to start but I knew I had information they could take away. In 2011, a TEDx conference invited Purdy to give the speech of a lifetime. In Purdy's book, she dedicates three chapters, more than 30 pages, to the events that resulted in the amputation of both legs below the knee. For the TEDx audience, she'd have to do it in 10 minutes in front of a live audience. In spite of her growing confidence in smaller venues, Purdy acknowledges that she was completely freaked out about giving a TED Talk. 
Her hands shook as she opened and her voice cracked, yet the story flowed from a raw and emotional place. When she finished, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. She said, I delivered a speech made perfect by its imperfections. Purdy's Story in Three Compelling Acts Amy Purdy's presentation was perfect. Let's return to the three-act storytelling structure, which we talked about earlier. If you'll recall, a narrative with a beginning, middle, and an end qualifies as a story. But it's not a great story. Amy Purdy's story might go like this. A 19-year-old girl falls ill. She's brought to the hospital with meningitis. She loses her legs, but survives. What I just told you meets the definition of story. But it's not going to win any awards, and it's not going to go viral on TED or catch Oprah Winfrey's attention. In other words, it's not going to inspire many people to dream bigger. Now let's turn to the three-act structure that Amy Purdy used in her now-famous TED Talk. It closely resembles the structure of a successful screenplay. Act 1 introduces the protagonist, the hero, and establishes the setting in which the character is living her everyday life. Above all, the first act must create empathy for the hero. We identify with characters we care about. The first act also establishes the turning point. It ends with the introduction of conflict. If you've seen the movie Titanic, it's the iceberg moment. Here's Purdy's Act 1. Growing up in the hot Las Vegas desert, all I wanted was to be free. I would daydream about traveling the world, living in a place where it snowed, and I would picture all of the stories that I would go on to tell. At the age of 19, the day after I graduated high school, I moved to a place where it snowed, and I became a massage therapist. For the first time in my life, I felt free, independent, and completely in control of my life, until my life took a detour. Act 2 heightens the tension and turns up the obstacles that the hero must overcome. A solid second act takes dramatic turns, often more than one. Titanic hit the iceberg in Act 1. Sinking is an even bigger problem. Here's Purdy's Act 2. I went home from work early one day with what I thought was the flu. And less than 24 hours later, I was in the hospital on life support with less than a 2% chance of living. It wasn't until days later, as I lay in a coma, that the doctors diagnosed me with bacterial meningitis, a vaccine-preventable blood infection. I thought the worst was over, until weeks later, when I saw my new legs for the first time. The calves were bulky blocks of metal with pipes bolted together for the ankles and a yellow rubber foot with a raised rubber line from the toe to the ankle to look like a vein. I didn't know what to expect, but I wasn't expecting that. I was absolutely physically and emotionally broken. At this point, the audience is broken too. We've established empathy with the hero and we've been through hell with her. Well, at least the worst is over. Or is it? Amy Purdy picks up the story. Four months later, I was back up on a snowboard, although things didn't go quite as expected. My knees and my ankles wouldn't bend, and at one point I traumatized all the skiers on the chairlift when I fell and my legs, still attached to the snowboard, went flying down the mountain. And I was on top of the mountain still. I was so shocked. I was just as shocked as everybody else, and I was so discouraged. But I knew that if I could find the right pair of feet, that I would be able to do this again. And this is when I learned that our borders and our obstacles can only do two things. One, stop us in our tracks, or two, force us to get creative. In Act 3, the conflict reaches its peak, and everything seems hopeless. Our hero must dig deep within her soul to find the emotional strength to fix the problem and to rise above the seemingly insurmountable odds. This is the climax. This is when Titanic cracks into two pieces and sinks to the bottom of the ocean. 
The character of Rose survives. She goes on to live a long life. But Rose is forever changed by her brief love affair with Jack and always keeps a piece of him in her heart. Let's turn to Amy Purdy's Act 3. My legs haven't disabled me. If anything, they've enabled me. They've forced me to rely on my imagination and to believe in the possibilities. So the thought that I would like to challenge you with today is that maybe, instead of looking at our challenges and our limitations as something negative or bad, we can begin to look at them as blessings, magnificent gifts that can be used to ignite our imaginations and help us go further than we ever knew we could. It's nearly impossible to resist the urge to stand up and cheer for Amy Purdy because, as we now know, our brains are wired to respond to such a story. Purdy believes that storytellers who have experienced struggle feel more deeply because they've experienced the depth of life and its highest peaks. Amy Purdy says, My biggest struggles have led to my biggest accomplishments. Behind every hero, there's a story of struggle and sacrifice, a story of dreams dashed and dreams found. If your life were a book and you were the author, how would you want your story to go? All of us have a story worth telling, but all too often we're reluctant or afraid to share our stories. Amy Purdy, the woman who backed away from her first public speaking request and nearly backed out of TED, has now become a sought-after and popular motivational speaker because she learned to embrace her story. When you go into speaking, you think you have grand ideas, says Purdy, but really, it's the simplest of ideas that we all relate to that have the most impact. The Storyteller's Secret Motivational storytellers ignite the dreams of others with stories of hardship, heartache, and overcoming the odds. Tension and triumph are integral to their story. They wear struggle as a badge of honor, inspiring their listeners to tell their own stories and to treat life as a book in which the individual is the author of his or her own destiny. Chapter 29 From Hooters to the C-Suite a former waitress shares her recipe for success. I was always running from where I came from, but as I get older, I realize it's the very thing that makes me unique. Cat Cole. Cat's mother endured her alcoholic husband for years before finally concluding that the only way to keep herself, Cat, and her two younger daughters safe was to move away. The move did not automatically make things easier. For the next three years, Kat's mother fed the family on $10 a week, mostly in the form of frozen lasagna and canned meat. When Kat was in high school, her mother was supporting the family on one income as an administrative assistant. Kat wanted to help support the family, so she eagerly sought a job as early as the law would permit. At the age of 17, Kat took a part-time job. After school, she changed into orange hot pants and a tight tank top and served chicken wings at a Florida Hooters restaurant. The job wasn't glamorous, but it taught her to run a kitchen and manage a staff. The job was important because in addition to helping her mom, Kat was working to save enough money to become the first person in her family to attend college. And sure enough, she had prior to her graduation from high school, saved enough to enroll at the University of North Florida, where she planned to get an engineering degree. She had made remarkable progress in a very short time, and it appeared as though things were going smoothly until the day of the kitchen mutiny. One day, in the middle of her shift, she heard a sudden buzz of conversation from the kitchen, followed by the sudden swing of the kitchen door as the entire kitchen staff walked off the job. She would later learn they'd had a dispute with the manager. They bolted in the middle of their shift, leaving Kat and the other waitresses to wonder how the patrons would get their food, not to mention how they would get their tips. Kat managed to bring home the bacon that day because she cooked it. 
I jumped into the kitchen and I made chicken wings. By the way, frying chicken wings with little orange shorts and pantyhose is a really bad idea, Kat said. Kat took charge, rallying the manager and the remaining staff, and succeeded in averting a restaurant disaster. In that moment, Kat discovered her gift. On paper, I was a train wreck, she said. Single-parent household, alcoholic father, college dropout, working for Hooters. If you just look at all of that on paper, it doesn't appear to be a very compelling resume. But in real life, if I'm put in charge of your business, I'm a sure bet. Kat was a sure bet, and her boss trusted her to train the staff of a new Hooters franchise in Australia. But she faced several obstacles. She had never been on a plane, didn't have a passport, and had never traveled outside of the country. Most importantly, she lacked confidence. What was so clear to her boss was not yet clear to her. For answers, she turned to the most inspiring leader she knew, her mom. Kat's mother grabbed her by the shoulders and said, You can do anything, and I'm expecting you to do everything. Kat made it to Australia. Kat no longer runs that Hooters in Australia, though she made a success of it. Kat Cole is now president of Cinnabon, a $1 billion franchise with more than 1,000 stores in 56 countries. What's more, she was named Cinnabon's president at the age of 32 and joined the ranks of the most successful young American business leaders. Cole has achieved remarkable career success, but an important part of her story is reminding her audiences that my story is only interesting if you understand where I came from. The Storyteller's Tools Stories do more than entertain us. They guide us. They inspire us to live a life with no borders and no boundaries, the motto that guides Cat Cole. We all have profound crises of confidence or even fail at some point in our careers. Successful leaders fight through the crises and the failures, and they focus on results. If those results are unacceptable, they try again and again until they're satisfied with the outcome. Further, leaders transform themselves into inspiring storytellers when they muster the courage to share the sometimes difficult lessons they've learned. Cat Cole finds common ground by telling her personal story. Cole openly shares her origin story with nearly everyone she meets. Early in her career, she discovered that honesty and authenticity offered a fast track to building trust and credibility. When Cole was assigned that role of opening the first Hooters franchise in Australia, she was given three weeks to train a new owner, to motivate the new staff, and to open the restaurant. To make matters more difficult, Cole was the youngest person in the room, making it that much harder to establish credibility and trust. Cat Cole once told me, to equalize the differences, I had to find common ground. I'm a crazy learner. I observed people. I watched people respond. The more I gave, the more they gave. When you smile and give and share, those things expedite the building of trust. And you cannot work on a team and accomplish a lot in a short amount of time without trust. When you don't know each other, find a way to fast-track it. Cole learns such a valuable lesson about building trust that she continues to share her origin story in nearly every setting. Keynote speeches, media interviews, employee meetings. In fact, moments before I spoke to Cat Cole, she had been on the phone with a new franchise owner, sharing her origin story with him. I asked her, why did you feel it necessary to talk about your background? Cole said, you can't assume people will trust you because they've read about you or because you run a successful company. People are naturally skeptical. If you lower your guard and be kind and share your own mistakes, faults, and your story in a way that says, I am like you, more than you probably realize, there is so much more that both of you can get done together. Four words explain Cat Cole's ability to build strong business partnerships based on trust. I am like you.
You see, people want to do business with people they like and who they trust. Cole's transparency makes her refreshing, likable, and trustworthy. According to Cole, people care and are motivated by being inspired and knowing they are working with, buying from, or working for really good people. People vote with their wallet, she said, when they know there is a good family, a good person, or a good company behind a product. Employees stay through the tough times when they know they're working for good people. Recall the classic storytelling narrative of tension and triumph. Cole's stories of struggling early in her career and redemption always end with a lesson that she's learned and how it positively impacted her career. For example, in a presentation to an Atlanta-area business conference, Cole reminded the audience that Cinnabon started as one store in a mall in Seattle, Washington. It began with one product, a high-calorie, disturbingly delicious cinnamon roll, as she calls it. But from those humble beginnings, Cinnabon grew into a global franchise through broadening its product offerings and establishing innovative partnerships. Cole ties the Cinnabon origin story back to her life struggle and extracts lessons that all businesses or professionals can adopt to find success. According to Cat Cole, there's always a core, a core to each of us where we come from, our roots, our background. We all have the potential to grow into something very different. Having the courage to expand from our core, but the discipline to keep it aligned with our brand has allowed the business to continue to grow despite massive economic headwinds and a huge increase in competition. The only brands and businesses that will survive in the next 5, 10, 20 years are not brands and businesses that have a particular product. They are the brands and businesses that have the discipline and the core competency of being flexible, of being able to partner, of being able to understand that just because they've been on one path for the last two, five, ten years, that it does not mean that it is the path they will take to continued success in the future. Cat Cole sees her leadership role as being a constant ambassador for the brand. An ambassador. The definition of ambassador is messenger. The message you deliver to partners Stakeholders, employees, and team members will fail to elicit the desired action if the source, you, are considered untrustworthy. Origin stories create trust, strengthen relationships, and build credibility for the messenger, the brand ambassador. Cole works in the food service industry, a trade traditionally made up of young workers. Millennials now make up the majority of employees in the workplace, and their career goals are very different than those of previous generations. Unlike baby boomers or Gen Xers, millennials don't see climbing the career ladder as the ultimate goal. They want more than a paycheck. They want mentorship and meaning. Survey after survey shows that young workers do not feel an attachment to their employers, as their parents did. They dislike structured hierarchies and wish to be part of communities with shared interests and passions. They don't want to be managed. They want to be inspired. Leaders like Cat Cole motivate young workers because those employees can see themselves in her identity story. Today's audiences are increasingly sophisticated, and they are very, very good at spotting a fake. Speakers who don't keep it real risk losing the credibility they need to affect behaviors and to make an impact. According to leadership author Howard Gardner, it is important that a leader be a good storyteller, but equally crucial that the leader embody that story in his or her life. Gardner says that leaders must fashion stories of identity if they hope to change hearts and minds. The story of identity is the origin story, the story of where a person came from and the lessons they learn from their struggle or failures. The Storyteller's Secret Inspiring leaders embrace their past, and they have the courage to share the lessons they've learned. Appreciate your roots, 
protect those roots, and share the stories that strengthen you. Chapter 30 Trading Wall Street Riches for the Promise of a Pencil The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Marcel Proust On his 25th birthday, Adam decided to create a life story worth telling. He left a lucrative career in private equity to start a nonprofit with an investment of just $25. The motivation for this action had come four years earlier, when he'd spent time in India as part of a Semester at Sea program. It was there that his eyes were open to poverty, pain, and suffering on a scale he had never imagined. He met a young boy, covered in dirt from head to toe, begging for money and food. Adam asked the young boy, If you could have anything in the world, what would you want most? A pencil, the boy replied. Adam was surprised. He had expected the boy to ask for a toy or an iPod. He reached into his backpack, pulled out a number two pencil, and watched as a wave of possibility washed over the boy's face. According to Adam, for me, that pencil was a writing utensil, but for him, it was a key. That single stick of wood and graphite could enable him to explore worlds within that he would never otherwise access. Adam returned to the United States with his eyes wide open, but those around him still had a narrow vision of what a life of meaning looked like. Adam had completed a triple major at Brown University. His parents, professors, and friends said he'd be crazy to give up a Wall Street career that was nearly guaranteed to bring in millions of dollars over his lifetime. And so Adam did what was expected of him. One day, he made the following notation in a notebook. I wish I was more interested in this work, but it's just not for me. Find your passion and you'll find your strength. Adam finally found the courage to follow his passion, and in doing so, found his strength. On October 1st, 2008, Adam Braun's nonprofit, Pencils of Promise, was born. Five years after starting that nonprofit with just $25, Braun's organization has opened more than 200 schools, serving more than 30,000 students in impoverished areas around the world. Every 90 hours, Pencils of Promise breaks ground on a new school. According to Adam Braun, I was just a regular guy with $25 who wanted to prove that regardless of age, status, or location, every person has the capacity to change the world. Every person, he says, has a revolution beating within his or her chest. I spoke to Braun upon the publication of his book, The Promise of a Pencil. Although Braun was only 30 years old at the time, I found him to be one of the most gifted storytellers I had ever interviewed. Braun has a keen sense of storytelling, sharpened after making thousands of fundraising pitches. He asks for feedback, constantly analyzes the reaction of his audience, and he's learned that the path to a person's head runs through the heart. For example, Braun acknowledges that it's not rational for people to write a check to support a child on the other side of the world, a child the donor will probably never meet. But making the audience, the donors, the hero of a story in which they play a role in changing the world, triggers the desired action of persuading people to open their wallets. Braun told me, the ability to captivate another individual through storytelling is essential to the early stage growth of a company. I spent a lot of time refining how I presented our work through thousands of conversation, he said. I learned the parts of our story that got people's eyes to light up and their heads to nod. I also learned when they started to fidget or their eyes glazed over. Through persistent communication, we refined the language through which we described the organization. It still remains the most critical part of driving the growth of the organization. The Storyteller's Tools 
Pencils of Promise needed wealthy donors to write big checks. The challenge, of course, was to persuade people to contribute money to faceless and nameless children on the other side of the world. The solution was to put a face and a name to those children so the donors could meet them and get to know them as individuals. And nothing comes closer to a real face-to-face -face meeting than video. Three little girls that Braun met in a small village in Laos would provide the jaw-dropping moment that Braun's pitches and presentations required. In March 2009, Braun was scouting the location for the organization's first preschool. Most families in the small village he came across lived in bamboo huts on less than $2 a day. Braun stumbled upon three little girls in one of the huts, playing with letters on a chalkboard. They wanted to learn, but they had no teachers, no classroom. Their names were Nuth, Nith, and Tamund. Braun took out a simple Canon camera, a point-and-shoot, and recorded a short video. In the video, Braun can be heard off-camera asking for the girls' names. The girls answer, they smile, and they giggle to each other. Braun pans the camera around to show the existing three-room primary school and the empty site that he hoped would be the first Pencils of Promise school. You're going to be our first preschool students, Braun tells the girls as they giggle and smile. Braun posted the video on Facebook, and he received an overwhelming response. Braun now inserts that 40-second video clip into his presentations, which is always a hit with the audience. Braun said there's an authenticity to the footage because it's not super high quality, and it's in the first person, so you feel as though you're witnessing a special moment. The video is less than one minute long, and it's a powerful element for drawing out an emotional response, says Braun. Once the video clip ends in Braun's presentation, he advances to the next slide, and it shows a photograph taken four months after he met the girls. It shows those same little girls sitting in their seats in the first Pencils of Promise classroom. Braun explains showing the before and after is incredibly powerful, and it allows people to go on an emotional journey. Braun's presentation isn't all story. He delivers facts and figures about the organization's financial stability to audiences of potential donors because it's what they think they want to hear. But while facts and figures might draw a nod of affirmation, they have yet to elicit a standing ovation. The video does every time. Neuroscience research in the lab explains why Braun's video triggers a standing ovation. It's all thanks to the neurochemical oxytocin, which we talked about earlier. Oxytocin is produced when we are trusted or shown a kindness, and it motivates cooperation with others, according to Paul Zak, a professor at Claremont Graduate University. Zak discovered that oxytocin levels in a person's brain can be, quote, hacked to motivate people to cooperate. Storytelling is the key to doing so. Zach and his team of researchers found that stories captured on video raise the oxytocin level in the brains of those subjects who watched the videos. According to Zach, by taking blood draws before and after the narrative, we found that character-driven stories do consistently cause oxytocin synthesis. Further, the amount of oxytocin released by the brain predicted how much people were willing to help others. For example, donating money to a charity associated with the narrative. Zach took his storytelling research one step further to figure out why stories have the effect they do. His research in neurobiology helps to explain why every storyteller you've heard about in this audiobook has either experienced hardship directly or leverages stories of struggle to move their audience. According to Zach, we discovered that in order to motivate a desire to help others, a story must first sustain attention, a scarce resource in the brain, and it does so by developing tension during the narrative. If the story is able to create that tension, then it is likely that attentive viewers or listeners will come to share the emotions of the characters in it, 
and, after it ends, likely to continue mimicking the feelings and behaviors of those characters. Zach says enduring stories tend to share a dramatic arc in which a character struggles and eventually finds unknown abilities and uses these to triumph over adversity. My work, he says, shows that the brain is highly attracted to this style of story. Adam Braun hasn't done any lab research, but he's a student of persuasion. He knows the human brain has an emotional and a logical or a rational side. According to Braun, the rational center leads us to make conclusions, and the emotional center leads us to action. Braun says a great pitch must acknowledge the viability of the product or service, but the focus should be on igniting the person's emotional core. Thanks to Braun's ability to ignite the emotional core of his audience, more than 30,000 poor children have access to schools they otherwise would not have. It's a lesson worth repeating. The Storyteller's Secret Persuasive storytellers ignite the emotional core of their listeners by sharing stories of real people overcoming real hardships. To trigger a release of oxytocin, the stories must follow the narrative arc of struggle and triumph. And if a storyteller cannot bring the audience face-to-face with the subject of the narrative, video works nearly as well. Facts and figures inform, but stories move people to action. Chapter 31 The Ice Bucket Challenge Melts the Hearts of Millions What an amazing opportunity we have to change the world. Pete Frades, six hours after being diagnosed with ALS. In the summer of 2011, Pete and his mom, Nancy, were sitting at the dinner table when Pete confided something that had been eating at him. I just don't feel like I'm living up to my potential, he said. Selling insurance is not my passion. Pete would find his life's mission, though it wasn't something he'd sought or something he'd wish on his worst enemy. Pete, a former outfielder and captain for the Boston College baseball team, was playing recreational baseball in an inner-city league when a 90-mile-an-hour fastball struck him in the left hand. His wrist went limp, never returned to normal. For six months, Pete visited doctors to figure out what had gone wrong. Finally, a neurologist said he had found an answer and called Pete into his office. On March 13, 2012... Pete called his mother, Nancy, to see if she'd like to go to the appointment with him. The nurse showed them into a waiting room, and shortly after, not one, but four doctors walked into the room. Nancy later recalled that she knew it would not be a normal office visit. The doctor said, It's not a sprained wrist. It's not a broken wrist. It's not an infection. The doctor then looked Pete in the eye and said, I don't know how to tell this to a 27-year-old kid. Pete, you have ALS. I'm sorry to tell you this, but there's no treatment and there's no cure. ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, is a progressive neurological disease that's hard to diagnose because the symptoms can be quite different. In most patients, however, the disease quickly degenerates into muscle weakness and paralysis, The doctor was right, there is no cure, and indeed little progress has been made in the decades since Lou Gehrig, the baseball player, died from the disease. But Pete would not be daunted by his prognosis. Only six hours after the doctors delivered their grim news, Pete, his girlfriend Julie, his parents, and his siblings all gathered at his parents' house in Boston. We're not looking back, we're looking forward, Pete instructed. What an amazing opportunity we have to change the world. I'm going to change the face of ALS. I'm going to get it in front of philanthropists like Bill Gates. The mission had become personal, and Pete, the former baseball captain, was determined to lead it. He now knew the answer to the question he had asked his mom several months earlier. What's my mission in life? Pete's mission would be to bring attention to the disease, 
and he would accomplish the mission through sharing his story. Pete Frades began speaking publicly about the need to raise awareness for the disease. He shared his story with all who would listen, civic groups, medical professionals, drug companies, and with government agencies like the FDA in Washington, D.C. On July 4, 2014, Frades wrote an article for MLB.com to commemorate the 75th anniversary of Lou Gehrig's retirement speech. It's known as the luckiest man speech. In the 1,700-word article, Pete Frades shared his heartbreaking but inspirational story with the same vivid details he was bringing to his public speeches. I once prided myself on my strong hands, he began. They helped me grip the bat, fire the barrel through the zone, and squeeze a fly ball safely into my outfield mitt. Today, they are unable to type this very story as I depend on eye-tracking technology to deliver the message that my sturdy voice and fingers once did. Frades traces the steps of his childhood, growing up in Beverly, Massachusetts, playing Division I college baseball, and hitting home runs at Boston's historic Fenway Park. Frades also shares the details of how his body began to show signs of the disease, which would eventually take his voice. The article ends with a call to action— and Frady's commitment to raise money to fight the disease. My dream is for this article to be found by someone in a Google search one day, and for he or she to wonder how anyone ever could have died from something treated so easily. Twenty-three days after Frady's published his story, the ice began to fall. Frady's did not start the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. That credit goes to his former roommate, who, inspired by Frady's courageous story, recorded himself pouring ice over his head, challenging others to do the same, and then posting the video to social media. The challenge succeeded beyond anyone's wildest dreams. By the fourth day, thousands of people had joined the challenge and posted their videos to Facebook. Within weeks, 2.5 million videos have been posted on Facebook alone. Sports stars like LeBron James and musicians like Justin Timberlake and Taylor Swift, movie stars like Tom Cruise, accepted the challenge and encouraged millions of others to do the same. And on August 16, 2014, Frades had accomplished the goal he set out to achieve on the day of his diagnosis, getting the message to philanthropists like Bill Gates. Gates accepted the challenge from Mark Zuckerberg and poured a bucket of ice over his head on a YouTube video. Gates, in turn, challenged Elon Musk, Ryan Seacrest, and TED Talks curator Chris Anderson. The viral phenomenon raised more than $100 million in donations for the ALS Association just in the summer of 2014. That's compared to $2.8 million for the comparable period the year before. By March 2015, it had generated more than $220 million for the nonprofit association, which allowed the association to fast-track medical trials that otherwise would have taken years to begin. Although the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge will go down as a case study in social media, the phenomenon would never have happened had it not been for Pete Frady's skill as a communicator and as a storyteller. Social media is a tool, but Pete's story galvanized a generation, according to his mother, Nancy Frades. The Storyteller's Tools Pete Frades majored in communication at Boston College, a field of study his mother encouraged him to pursue because he was really, really good at it. According to Nancy Frades, Pete could always command a room a skill his teachers noticed as early as the sixth grade. In the sixth grade, Pete gave a book report about one of his favorite baseball players, Tony Canigliaro, who played for the Boston Red Sox. Pete already showed a knack for performance, and he knew how to bring a story to life. Nancy Frades told me that Pete wrote the presentation himself, and he showed up on performance day dressed in a baseball uniform. His teacher still talks about it as the most memorable presentation she had ever seen a student deliver. In the ninth grade, Pete ran for class president. According to Nancy, he wrote the speech himself. 
and it had everything you would want in a presentation. It had humor. It was relatable. And a call to action. He mesmerized the room. Frades accepted the diagnosis as an opportunity to be the voice for tens of thousands of people who live with ALS every day and who often lose their voices as the disease progresses. Pete realized that a story had to be relatable. People had to see themselves in Pete's story. Pete wanted them to know that if it could happen to him, it could happen to them. And to do so, he had to make the story as specific as possible. Life before my diagnosis was very normal, Pete once told television host Charlie Rose. I was a three-sport athlete in high school. I went on to play baseball at Boston College, where I captained the team in 07. I was six foot two, 225 pounds, and as someone said, cut out of granite and ready to roll. Speaking to the staff at Biogen IDEC, a Massachusetts company specializing in therapies to improve the lives of patients with neurological problems, Pete gave very specific details about the decline in his performance leading up to that fastball that hit his wrist. Pete said, Last summer, I was playing inner-city baseball down the street in Lexington. My batting average had come down from 400 to 270. It was the second-to-last game of the year. There's a kid from UMass throwing. He's bringing about 90, mostly fastballs. 90 should have been no big deal. I struck out. I was really frustrated. I was one of the best players in the league. I could hear the other bench taunting me. We finally got him. During the second-to-last inning, I checked a swing, and being a left-hander, the ball hit me in the left wrist. That's the moment my life changed forever. In a documentary on the Ice Bucket Challenge shown on ESPN, the host of the show asked the question, how does a movement start? The answer, of course, is an inspiring story. But not just any story. A story that transports people into another person's shoes. A story that is vividly told with specific and concrete details. The hallmark of narrative is assurance, according to scholar Gerald Prince. It lives in uncertainty, he said. This happened, then that. This happened because of that. This happened, and it was related to that. Now let's break down the structure that Prince says gives stories their specificity and apply it to the story that Pete Frades told. This happened. Pete's at-bat performance was declining. Then that. Pete was struck with a fastball. This happened because of that. Pete's wrist went limp. This happened, and it was related to that. Pete's wrist never recovered. Six months later, Pete learned he had ALS. A story, says Gerald Prince, is a specific event, carried out by specific characters in a specific place at a specific time. Why do we listen for specifics? Prince and other scholars who study the evolution of narrative believe we have a built-in radar to protect ourselves from dishonesty and falsehoods. We're not always accurate, of course, and some people have better BS detectors than others. But the more specific a story, the more evidence we have against which to measure a story's truthfulness. People want to believe that you're telling a true story. And so we listen for specifics to help us distinguish between fact and fiction. Your story must be specific. Consumers don't buy vague solutions. They buy products that will improve their lives in a very specific way. Donors do not contribute to causes. They give money to help specific people attain specific goals. And people don't join movements to cure a disease. They join movements to help one specific person who they feel connected to through story. The Storyteller's Secret Movements don't start themselves. Leaders inspire movements, and they do so with stories that provide specific, tangible, and concrete details.
Chapter 32 His Finest Hour 180 Words That Saved the World Short Words Are Best Winston Churchill The talk started well enough, but just as the newly elected representative, all of 29 years of age, thought he had hit his stride, he experienced a moment feared by anyone who has ever had to address a large group. He had forgotten the rest of his speech. As he stood frozen in front of his peers for a period that lasted three whole minutes, but must have felt like an eternity, he felt his career beginning to unravel. The fog of that moment wasn't thick enough to prevent him from observing his political enemies snicker and laugh openly. Worse, his supporters whispered to one another, and they looked at the floor in an attempt to disassociate themselves from the catastrophe in front of them. The speaker finally gave up, returned to his seat in despair, and covered his head with his hands. He thought his career was finished. The next morning, the newspapers called the fiasco a shipwreck. A famous doctor speculated the speaker was the victim of defective cerebration, early senility. But the young man wasn't senile. In fact, he was one of the sharpest minds in the country. He vowed that he would never make that mistake again. From then on, he worked tirelessly to refine every word of every speech and made sure the only words he spoke were those he wrote himself and he believed in with all his heart. Thirty-six years later, Winston Churchill's time would come. He had become such a master of his craft that he single-handedly convinced the British people to stand up against Adolf Hitler and to fight to the death. Churchill became known as one of the greatest orators of the 20th century, and he changed the course of history. Winston Churchill proves that one speaker, armed with one carefully crafted speech, can trigger a movement that defeats unconscionable evil. The day of the speech was May 28, 1940. Former Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain had paid the price of trying to appease Adolf Hitler. Nazi Germany had conquered much of Europe. British soldiers were trapped at Dunkirk, and France was about to fall as German soldiers were marching toward Paris. The British island was alone, and the Nazi gain seemed irreversible. Make a deal with Hitler, the majority of the British cabinet pleaded with Churchill, who was the newly appointed prime minister. The majority of the British people agreed that only an agreement with Hitler would save them. Churchill called a meeting of the entire cabinet. He would not accept popular sentiment. If this Long Island story of ours is to end at last, let it end only when each one of us lies choking in his own blood upon the ground. The cabinet members stood, cheered, shouted their support. Within one year of Churchill's speech, 30,000 British men, women, and children had died at the hands of the Nazis, and yet they fought. They fought through relentless German air assaults on London. They fought on the beaches of Normandy. They fought in the hills, on the beaches, and in the air. Winston Churchill's indomitable courage and persuasive storytelling skill carried Britain and its allies through the greatest crisis the world had ever known. If you read the history of the period, you realize just how close the British were to making a deal with Hitler. If they had, Hitler would have remained unchecked, and democracy would have been dethroned in much of the world, replaced with evil that Churchill called the abyss of a new dark age. But in the span of two weeks, over six speeches, Churchill successfully turned around public opinion. An entire population, ready to cave to Hitler's demands, were motivated to pick up their arms and fight to the death. London Mayor Boris Johnson, a prolific writer, details Churchill's remarkable transformation as a storyteller in his book The Churchill Factor. He wasn't a natural, Boris Johnson told me. Churchill did learn to develop speeches that ignited the passion of a nation, but it was due to what Johnson called a triumph of effort and preparation, and not innate skill. According to Johnson, to lead the country in time of war, to keep people together at a moment of profound anxiety, you need to connect with them in a deep and emotional way. 
it was not enough to appeal to the logic of defiance. He could not just exhort them to be brave. He needed to engage their attention, to cheer them, to boost them. If necessary, to make them laugh, and better still, to laugh at their enemies, to move the British people. He needed, at some level, to identify with them, with those aspects of their characters that he and they conceived to be elemental to the national psyche. Several stylistic storytelling devices helped Churchill make that connection, but one in particular stands out. Churchill replaced long words with short ones. The Storyteller's Tools The shorter words of a language are usually the more ancient, Churchill once said. Their meaning is more ingrained in the 